I next met with Dr. Susan O'Brien for a review of ASCO papers on CML, and she began by commenting on the 24-month update of the ENIS study comparing the second-generation TKI nilotinib to imatinib in chronic phase CML. I think that this is important data, even though it's an update of something that was already published in the New England Journal last year. And the reason I think it's important is, and some of this will come into play when we talk about the dasatinib versus imatinib also. The primary endpoint in those two trials were different. The primary endpoint here for the ENES trial was major molecular response at 12 months. And they clearly made their primary endpoint, whether they used 300 or 400 of nilotinib BID, because there were two nilotinib arms and one standard dose imatinib arm at 400. And the primary endpoint was met. The major molecular response at one year was much higher. The issue, however, is that if we look back at the IRIS trial, which was the pivotal trial that got imatinib approved for frontline therapy of CML, really the gold standard is achieving a complete cytogenetic response in terms of long-term survival and by 18 months. So even if you don't have one at 12 months on that trial, you still did as well as if you got one at 18 months, never mind major molecular response, which is actually not a criteria for success or failure. So one of the issues when this trial was first published was, well, yes, at this endpoint, it's better, but will that translate into anything because is that really a clinically relevant endpoint? Here now we have 18-month follow-up, and this clearly is an endpoint where if you did not achieve a complete cytogenetic response with imatinib at 18 months based on the data from the IRIS trial, you would consider that a failure, and you would then switch that patient to something else. So here, because we have the 18-month data and we do have the complete cytogenetic response that was presented at ASH and then updated to 24 months here, we see that the 18-month complete cytogenetic response with either arm of nilotinib was 85 or 82% versus only 74% with imatinib, and this was statistically significant. So now we're coming to endpoints where we know we would declare failure, and so at those endpoints, we are continuing to see improvement with the second-generation TKI used up front. And I guess the other thing I noticed in their slides that I thought was interesting was first the progression-free survival events. And even though the numbers are kind of small, when you just sort of look at that 5, 4, and the 2 in nilotinib arms, and then 12 in imatinib, I don't know, it's kind of interesting to me. It is. And the other thing that came out when the paper was first published, which clearly is a very clinically relevant endpoint, and which is also included in the slides, is that the progression to accelerated or blast phase was lower. And that is clearly relevant because that is a very bad thing if the patient develops accelerated or blast phase. Now, the interesting point about that is that with imatinib, the highest rate of transformation is actually in the first two years. And then it drops off significantly, probably suggesting that these are people who have small resistant clones to begin with that then come to the fore when you suppress the more sensitive clone. So certainly this is better, although in the long run, one might expect this difference to fall off somewhat because the transformation rate after the first two years on imatinib is very, very low. Again, sometimes these fractions are so low that kind of it doesn't mean too much intuitively. But again, when you look at the progression to accelerated phase, blast crisis, you know, 12 patients on the imatinib arm versus two on one of the nilotinib arms, three on the other, the percents are still small. But, you know, when you think about that number of people, it does seem humanly significant. Yes, it certainly does. Maybe we can go on to the abstract 6502 
which was looking at the incidence of BCR-ABLE mutations in patients that were actually on the ENIS trial. So perhaps not surprisingly, again, based on what we've just discussed, since the early failure rate is clearly higher with imatinib, one sees more patients developing mutations. Now, one very important point is that no patients have mutation at baseline. And this is important because it tells us not to waste our time looking for mutations at baseline. Essentially, when people are responding to treatment, there's also no point in looking for them because the only time you really find them is in patients who are failing. Now, they may not have a mutation and be failing, but you don't really find mutations in people who are having a successful response. So since the early failure rate was higher with imatinib, there were more patients who developed mutations. Now, interestingly, most of the mutations that developed on the imatinib arm were sensitive to nilotinib, suggesting, again, the power of your ability to salvage these patients with second-generation TKIs. The mutation we would be most worried about, the T315i, which is resistant to all of the currently commercially available drugs, was not very different in any of the arms, which is encouraging. How about paper 6509 looking at basutinib? So this trial, I think, was a bit disappointing in that, unlike the trials we've been talking about, imatinib versus basutinib, here they did not meet their primary endpoint, which was confirmed complete cytogenetic response at 12 months. Now, What's unfortunate is there wasn't a lot of phase two data with this agent, and probably the dose going into this trial was a bit too high. And why do I say that? Well, the discontinuation rate on the basutinib arm was 22%, which is pretty high. And I think part of that is that now you have alternative TKIs, so people are more willing to not deal with toxicities and just say, let me take them off and put them on something else I know works. So actually, if you do the analysis on intent to treat, the difference was not significant. But if you looked at the patients who actually were able to stay on the basutinib, didn't come off study, they did significantly better. So I think that this is a more potent TKI than imatinib, probably along the lines of the other second-generation TKIs. But because of the high discontinuation rate for side effects on an intent to treat analysis, we didn't see as big a difference in this trial. And where do you say things heading with this agent? Well, I'm not sure what the plans are that the company has, but they also have very good data in patients failing to TKI. So one possibility would be to try and file on the current study, which I think is unlikely because the FDA is very big on primary endpoints, as you well know, even though some of the other endpoints were significantly better with basutinib. Nevertheless, the primary endpoint, which is what the FDA would pay the most attention to, was not met. So another possibility, though, might be to get some type of approval in patients who failed two prior TKIs. How about paper 6510 by Dr. your colleague, Dr. Kantarjan, the decision trial? So same kind of comments as I made to the ENEST-ND trial was that when this was first published, it had a different primary endpoint than the nilotinib trial, but this primary endpoint was complete cytogenetic response at 12 months. And again, I made the point earlier that that's not considered a failure if you don't get that with imatinib. So here now we have the 18-month data, and for confirmed complete cytogenetic response, which means that they got it and then they validated on a second marrow, the response rates were clearly higher with disatinib. 
if you look at the complete cytogenetic response, not confirmed, meaning you didn't have to have it documented twice, which would be more comparable to the nilotinib versus imatinib trial, the numbers look almost identical. So nilotinib and disatinib look similar, and the two imatinib arms look very similar in the two trials. So again, I think the relevance of this follow-up, even after the original paper was published in the New England Journal, is that this is clearly an endpoint that would define failure to imatinib if you did not reach a complete cytogenetic response. And so at this very clinically relevant endpoint, this second-generation TKI is doing better used as upfront therapy. And so are you expecting any data over the next year or so to further help the decision about the initial TKI? My guess would be that with further follow-up, these two second-generation TKIs are going to continue to look better. We may not see much difference in survival because what you have to remember is that the salvage rate in patients failing imatinib to second-generation TKIs is very, very high. So these people are not necessarily going to die anytime soon if they quote-unquote fail because you have something you can treat them with that's very successful. So it may be difficult to show a survival advantage without many years of follow-up, but we may start to see some differences in progression-free survival, I suspect. And right now in your own practice outside of protocol setting, how do you go about making that decision? Well, I generally will use a second-generation TKI up front, and I will also try and balance it based on comorbidity. So if I have a patient who has, say, congestive heart failure where I know they're prone to pleural effusions, I might not choose disatinib. If I have a diabetic patient, since you can't see some increases in the blood sugar with nilotinib, and because of the fact that they can't eat around the time that they take it, so it's a bit more restrictive in terms of how it's given, I might not choose nilotinib for that patient. I don't think one can really say at this point that if you want to use a second-generation TKI, you can choose on the basis of efficacy. We really have nothing to suggest at this point that one is better than the other. The toxicity profiles are slightly different. The nilotinib is given BID, whereas the disatinib has the advantage of being once a day. But I think from an efficacy point of view, they're equal. And in fact, what you, I think, find if you ask most academic physicians is they tend to use the one for which they participated in the original trial. And that makes sense because they have a comfort level with that agent. I have the sense that there's a lot of imatinib being used in community-based practice. Do you have that sense? Yes. I mean, if we talk about the next abstract about the survey of current practices, which is abstract 6513, you see that I think it was about 40% are still using imatinib. And again, I think that's reasonable when up until now, the published data, although clearly looking better at short-term endpoints with the upfront use of second-generation TKIs, have not been showing any difference in event-free survival or overall survival part of it for reasons we just discussed. And I think one thing that makes physicians also comfortable with imatinib, other than the fact that they have used it before, is they feel like if a patient fails imatinib, they have a very good drug they can give them. And the obvious question is, what do you do with a patient failing a second-generation TKI up front? And the answer is, there have been so few failures so far that we don't really know. But for example, if they fail nilotinib, will disatinib be successful or et cetera? But right now, that's really a black box because we don't have enough failures. The frontline trials are too early. And I think that's one concern that people in practice have about what do I do if my patient fails the quote unquote better drug. And I think one 
bothersome thing about this was that 50% of the physicians were not familiar with the international index. And this means that PCR values can vary very much from lab to lab. This is one of the problems in monitoring PCR and that all the academic labs now standardize against an international index. And this is very relevant because it also said, interestingly enough, that many physicians in practice feel that an important endpoint is major molecular response. Again, I will come back to the point that thus far, the only thing that clearly correlates with outcome is complete cytogenetic response, not major molecular response. With longer follow-up, it may, but right now it doesn't. And the whole point about major molecular response is that you may think you have a major molecular response, but if the lab isn't standardizing their values against the international index, you may not. So there's a lot of focus on an endpoint, which may or may not be that important, and then using a test where in the lab there may be a lot of swing in that value. I think one thing that is useful, though, is that if physicians at least use the same lab every time, then presumably the changes are consistent within that lab. I think where you really run into problems is if you use different labs at different points in time, because then trying to figure out whether the PCR is going up, down, or whatever is almost impossible. What about the issue of higher dosimatinib? There are a number of trials now, mostly in Europe, looking at high dosimatinib. And I think many people in the United States were kind of thinking that was dead because the TOPS trial, which was the trial randomizing patients between 400 and 800, did not meet its primary endpoint at 12 months of complete cytogenetic response, kind of like the basutinib versus imatinib trial, and for very similar reasons, that a significant fraction of patients cannot take 800. So on intent to treat, it didn't look better. But again, if you did the analysis where you said, well, I'm just going to look at the people who actually could tolerate the 800, they did dramatically better than the people on 400. And there are now a couple of European studies looking at combinations as well as high-dose imatinib. So imatinib, low-dose RSC, imatinib interferon, high-dose imatinib. And it's very interesting that the high-dose imatinib arms on those trials are looking the best. And if you pluck out the data and compare it to the frontline data with disatinib and nilotinib, it looks just as good. And I think the obvious relevance of this is what happens when imatinib goes off patent. Is this going to become a more attractive approach if using a higher dose and having the patient be able to tolerate it can get you as good results as what you can get with second-generation TKIs. So I think this will become more relevant later on. Right now, I don't think too many people outside of the clinical trials I just mentioned are using high-dose imatinib. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about MDS and AML. We picked out five papers. Again, some of these you don't think are important, we can skip them. If they're ones that you think were there, important that we didn't bring up, you can mention them. But what about this first paper, the Classic 1 trial? So this was looking at clofarabine plus cytarabine compared to cytarabine alone, high-dose cytarabine, in older patients with relapsed disease, AML. And Unfortunately, what that trial showed, and this is using a dose of clofarabine of 40, the RSC dose was a gram per meter squared daily times five, was that the CR rate was almost doubled with the clofarabine plus RSC. The event-free survival was much better, but the overall survival was no different. And the primary reason for that was that the induction mortality was higher. And this is a theme we've seen in other trials trying to combine RSC with a second agent, and I think comparing it to RSC. So for example, this was true in the cytarabine plus chloretazine trial, although that trial was not looking at just elderly patients. 
So I think one point is that probably the clofarabine dose was too high in the combination. It was 40, as I mentioned. And it would be interesting to have data, which we don't have, looking at clofarabine at a lower dose, particularly in an older population. It's not really clear to me why they focus so much on older patients, because you could almost make the argument that if this trial hadn't been so restricted, maybe, and we don't know this, the early mortality rate wouldn't have been so significantly greater if there were younger patients included. The median age was like around 67, so it's not what I would call a super elderly population, would you? No, but I think a 67-year-old's ability to tolerate high-dose RC, even high-dose RC alone, is not the same as a 40-year-old. So again, I'm sure there was a rationale for the older patients. In fact, there was data using this regimen in older patients from MD Anderson. But in terms of the randomized trial design, I think probably the clofarabine dose was too high and restricting it to older patients kind of put them behind the eight ball. What is, again, your current non-protocol approach in general to the older patient with AML? So with relapse disease, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on the comorbidities. It depends on the cytogenetics. It depends on the duration of first remission. So if you have somebody that had a reasonable duration of first remission with a 3 plus 7 based type regimen, then I think we generally would give them a high-dose RSC-based regimen. If they're really frail, we probably wouldn't. If you're not going to give, I mean, I would say that age aside, high-dose RSC is the more or less accepted standard for relapse refractory AML, but patients with short remissions, very bad cytogenetics, or the very elderly are not apt to benefit and not apt to get it. You might say then, well, what is the standard for relapse in that population? And I would say that there probably isn't a standard outside of high-dose RSC. And those are the kind of patients that you certainly want to put on clinical trials because there's nothing really good. What about the oral presentation of the phase three trial comparing decidabine versus supportive care or low-dose IRC? So this showed that decidabine did have a better outcome, although the median survivals were not significantly different. But with longer follow-up, the survival curves did look significantly different. I think, again, one of the issues is in terms of using this as a registration trial, the FDA is very big on primary endpoints. So your your second look after you have more data, which you could argue should actually be a better or a more accurate assessment of the data because they initially looked after X many deaths and then the second look was after even more deaths. So in other words, you have more events, and that's when it became statistically significant. On the other hand, from a clinical, just practical point of view, admittedly, the difference was, the median difference was small. It was only about two months. So I think the best that this can tell you is that using decidabine in older patients with AML, particularly if they're not patients that you feel that you can give three plus seven or even more intensive regimens to, is reasonable and will be something that's a reasonable thing to do, but it's not going to be any major home run. How about abstract 6505, looking at sequential azocytidine and lenalidomide in older patients with AML? So the nice thing about this is it feeds right into what I just said, that the good thing about decitabine and azocytidine is, yes, they're myelosuppressive, but outside of that, particularly for decitabine, there's really no toxicity. There's very little nausea. There's nothing, really so that these drugs could easily lend themselves to combinations. And I think the lenalidomide is interesting. And the issue, I think, is twofold here for this abstract. 
this was sort of a phase one, and there's only 18 patients. So although they report a, a very high CR rate in these elderly AML patients, I can't get too worked up over an N of 18. The second point is that the fatigue was 94%. And that's also my experience, that lenalidomide in elderly patients, particularly if you're going to give it at higher doses or for a prolonged period of time, fatigue really becomes a major issue. So I like the concept of combining azacitidine with another drug. I'm not sure that based on the side effect profile, this is something that will be so easy to give to elderly patients. And you have to remember is in some of these toxicities like fatigue, let's say you're not talking grade three to four, but let's say you're talking grade two and the lenalidomide is given indefinitely. You know, a grade two toxicity with a drug that you give constantly as opposed to, you know, three days out of the month, that becomes a much, much more relevant non-grade three to four toxicity. And so I think that that just may be something that could be an issue with this type of regimen trying to dose escalate lenalidomide. How about the paper by Dr. List looking at early lenalidomide dose intensity and durable red blood cell transfusion independence in patients with low intermediate risk MDS and DEL5Q? Right. So, I mean, they clearly show that the ability to take higher doses right up front is what gave you your response. Now, it's a little bit confounded by the fact that another predictor for less good response was low platelets. Well, why is that? Because if you're starting with low platelets, you're not going to be able to give full-dose lenalidomide. So it's a little bit of a select population. But I think we have data also from CLL to suggest that there is a dose response. And so I'm not surprised at all that with a higher dose of lenalidomide, they got better results. But again, these are always the issues. I mean, we've talked about this a little bit in the CML trials. If the patient can take it, they tend to do better. The issue is how many people can take it. And anytime you're looking at intent to treat, you may not get the same data. But if you actually look at the patients who can take it, yes, being able to take a higher dose worked better. In what situations, if any, do you use lenalidomide in non-DEL5Q MDS? And does the same thing apply in terms of dose intensity relationship? Well, remember, there was a trial in the non-DEL5Q, and they had a very respectable response rate you know, of about 20-something percent, not as high as in the deletion 5Q, but pretty respectable for an MDS population with an oral agent. And I don't know, my answer is I've not seen any data presented for that trial in terms of dose intensity. Let me just say, as an opinion, it wouldn't surprise me if it mattered, but I don't think I've seen any data presented to know the answer to that. 